Welcome to the International Collective of Female Cinematographers podcast, where every week we will be talking to a different cinematographer and listening through their stories as they navigate the filmmaking world, sharing secrets and experiences to empower our community. The ICFC is a collective of professional female cinematographers from around the world who provide each other with community support and industry advocacy. We are your hosts, Emilia and Akina. Today, we're so excited to welcome Sandra Veldi Hansen. We'll be discussing how Sandra has navigated having a career as a cinematographer, shooting TV shows, motherhood, being an educator, and struggling with imposter syndrome. Sandra, thank you for joining us. Sure. So how did you start out as a filmmaker and how did you become a DP? Okay. Uh, I'm one of those... I have to say, because I came from the kind of Spielberg generation of uh, filmmakers, I wanted to get into film as early as eight or nine. I was watching a bunch of Spielberg movies and I wanted to do that. And I I remember this in particular because I wrote uh, an essay and uh, maybe it was a little bit older, like when I was 10 or 11. I was also interested in being an astronaut. <laughs> so it was like an astronaut and filmmaker. And so I wrote this essay that said like my future was going to be like I was going to be the first astronaut in space to make a movie uh, in space. And I was going to win a Grammy for it. Um, I'm not exactly. <laughs> maybe I was maybe I wanted a score too. I, I don't know. But anyway, so so that's the kind of my first recollection, I think, of of like, I've always wanted to get into film. I was a a latchkey kid and and I spent a lot of my days watching movies. So that's how it all started. And then, you know, we had my mom. Actually, I attribute a lot of my love of technology to my mom. My mom was always trying to buy the latest and greatest new technology, whether it was stereo systems or televisions or when Betamax started or VHS. And so my mom was actually the first person to buy a video camera. And I, I it's like one of the old school video cameras, like with the, the deck was separated from the camera. So I started to play around with that stuff. And then she, whenever the technology got better, she would buy something new. And I took such an interest at it that my mom then was like, this is great. You know, like I'll have Sandra figure out how to use it. And then my mom also got a still camera, Nikon 35 millimeter FG that I also kind of took over. So I started taking stills and making videos. My sister and I, my both my parents work. So I was making videos of my sister and our friends would come over and I'm Filipino. And so Filipinos are known for their big parties. Like, you know, somebody would make a big pot of soup and then everybody would come over to have it. And all the, the men and women would go play mahjong. And what do the kids have to do? So guess what? Sandra's like, oh, let's make a movie. And then, you know, we would spend two or three hours doing that just to pass the time. And then at the very end, we would show the whole family or all the families what we did. So that's where it got started, I think. And then as far as becoming a cinematographer, again, I was taking photographs and behind the camera. So when it came time, I knew 
because I, I love filmmaking, I knew even though I, my parents wanted me, my, my dad wanted me to be a lawyer and my mom wanted me to be a cardiovascular surgeon. I, from a very early on, told them that I was going to go, I was going to be a filmmaker. And so I set my sight in high school that I was going to go to film school. And I did. I went to the Florida State University. And one of the things that even though it was like a general film school, I, I remember in the application, you're supposed to indicate like, what is the one particular thing you want to focus on. And because I'd been taking stills and, you know, using the video camera, I was like, I'm interested in being a cinematographer, even though I didn't exactly know what that was. I just knew that they were in charge of the camera when I applied. And then it wasn't until I think, I don't even remember. It's all, I'm probably getting the timeline all wrong, but nobody checks. But, uh, I, uh, about a year into film school, I remember it was a directing project that we had to like write and, and we shot it on, I think it was like on beta cam or something. And we brought it into the class and the directing teacher is like, Sandra, this is okay. Um, but I feel like you concentrate a lot on the camera and the lighting, but and, and as far as performance, it, it's not great. And that's when it occurred to me. I was like, oh, my God, you have just that is what I want to do. I don't want to necessarily deal with performances or, or work with actors in that way or come up with stories because that's I want to be able to visualize through the camera and with light other people's stories. And so then moving forward, I told all my classmates that I wanted to pursue DPing. And luckily in that particular class, uh, we were very lucky that the majority of the people in the class were women. I think that particular class was one of the very first classes where the majority of the, the people enrolled in the class were women. And they all asked me to shoot their projects. So I was able to really kind of, you know, shoot as much as I could. So that's kind of my history behind me being a filmmaker and uh, being a DP. Cool. Also, your bio mentions that you, when you started out working, you were in AC. Can you talk about that transition from becoming a crew member to becoming a fully fledged working DP? Because like, I feel that a lot of people, if you're crewing, if you're coming up through crew, like making that transition can be really hard. So what was your experience with that? I kind of get taking it back to when I finished film school. So at the time, the historical record at the time of becoming a cinematographer was actually going through the camera or lighting department. And I, first of all, just, I'm actually inherently a pretty shy, introverted person. And so the thought of moving to New York or LA and saying, hey, look at me, was really kind of daunting. And I honestly felt like, okay, well, in order for me to be a DP, I have to go through camera, I have to go through lighting. I really love cameras. I've been working with cameras, obviously, since I was little. I'm going to go through the, I'm going to go through the camera department. And so, I mean, we won't get into, but I, I, I did end up going to NYU grad school because again, I was afraid of just like moving to New York and just saying hire me. And so I went to NYU grad school in the cinema studies department, which was not a good choice for me. And while I was there, I tried to AC because I was like, well, I'm here in New York. I'm going to be a camera assistant. And then this camera assistant thing is going to, yeah, I'm going to start here as a loader second, because obviously at the time people were just, you know, it was either film or beta 
Cam, and then I'll move up the ranks. And and then I'm in this grad program that will help pay for me living in New York City. So then, I, unfortunately, I had I had a death in the family, and I ended up having to. I wasn't happy at NYU anyway, and so I ended up moving back home to help with my family. And I was then living in Orlando, Florida, and I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to go back to grad school. So, but I still want to be on this trajectory to becoming a cinematographer. So camera department. And so I ended up finding a local cinematographer name is Tony Foresta. And he was doing an indie feature and he was looking for a second loader. We were shooting 35. This was an indie. This was a budget, uh, indie budget under a hundred thousand dollars. And they were shooting on 35. Like that's unheard of. Now. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Uh, and so I got Hired. And then I ended up working for that person and, you know, for a lot of Orlando, not a lot, but some Orlando indie productions as a camera assistant for about six or seven years. But the only unfortunate thing is in Florida, like many of these other smaller non-production cities, you know, there's a core group of people that work and and it's mainly like either commercials or you know the rant and I wasn't in the in, in Florida it's a right to work state so there was no real need for me to join the union at the time and so I was just kind of trying to get jobs but again I couldn't break through this core group of people and of course the core group of people were all men and mm. um and it, you know, and I would remember that I would I work for this one. Luckily, this one cinematographer, Tony, really um, kind of trained me and really kind of brought me under his wing and took me on his jobs. But it was really hard to break out of that because nobody would hire me or I wasn't part of the the boys club. I would walk into Panavision Orlando at the time and they would say to me things like, oh, I've worked with a woman AC before. And, you know, my response is like, well, good for you. Like, <laughs> why is this such a big deal? And at that point, after about six or seven years, I was like, oh my God, I feel like my trajectory is moving at a snail's pace. If I really, first of all, I see this, I mean, I can't even break through this boys club of assistance to even get on higher level as an assistant there what I feel like I'm going to hit a glass ceiling when it comes to being a DP I'm never going to get there and so I made the decision I'd always heard of the American Film Institute I had read an American cinematographer like every cinematographer that I had admired had gone through the program and I was like you know what I've got to I got to I got to I got to do something about it I, you know, forget this historical trajectory through the camera department. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be a DP. So I applied to AFI. Luckily, I got in and I moved to Los Angeles and I went to AFI. And and I think that's how that all got started. You just mentioned that you went to NYU and you said to yourself that you didn't want to go back to grad school or you didn't think you were going to go back to grad school. And then you did go to AFI. There's a bit of a debate on how much grad school really actually does for you and for your career, your film career. Obviously, you did make the choice to go to grad school, but do you have any opinions on that on whether it is completely necessary, it isn't necessary, or like how people can approach that? Well, I think it all depends on the person, too. 
right? I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I teach at AFI now also, but for anybody who is interested and wants to be like they they can't imagine being anybody else other than a cinematographer and are not sure how to kind of get there. I would recommend AFI, the grad school. And it, I don't think it has anything to do with grad pro because nobody, honestly, nobody cares. So, you know, when you go out, everybody knows when you go out into the industry, nobody is hiring you. It doesn't work like, you know, other fields where a master's degree is needed in order to get a job in the film industry. But, but I do have to say the AFI cinematography grad program does really prepare you and give you the resources in order to be a a cinematographer. So I think it depends on the person. But uh-huh. if you're that kind of person that maybe needs a little take in the pants or a little bit of a springboard because you don't know necessarily how to break into the industry on your own, then maybe a grad program like AFI or any other uh, program, and there's not that many that specializes in cinematography, particularly in a production city like New York or LA. I don't necessarily know if you were to go to a program in a smaller town, whether how advantageous that is. I don't know. Um, I I don't have that experience. I think it depends on you and uh, who you are as a person and what you want. Would you say the education, though, or would you say it's the network that you received from grad school that kind of propels you, right? You make these connections and then maybe you work, you build your way up with people that you went to school with. Is that a thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. Uh, it's absolutely both. So the one thing I have to say going to AFI, and again, I I don't want this to be a key self in AFI, but... Okay, but there you go. Like, you see, I mean, UCLA is another example, too. Like, the thing for me, and, and I, I don't know what your experience was, but my experience in grad school, it, it was both a great way to build a network, but it also really focus me on understanding what cinematography is. Because when I was, you know, in undergrad film school, it's much a more general, you know, and so you're focusing on everything, sound, you know, editing, and you're not necessarily just focusing on cinematography and really understanding what that, what that means. And so in undergrad, I was obviously lighting and creating shots. And I think a lot of it is more from the gut while once you get into a much more specialized program, you start really looking at cinematography and what that means in terms of the visual language. Like, And then it's also the opportunity to learn new technology. You know, you don't necessarily, you know, like I, I don't need to know the latest and greatest in editing. I can learn all about the technology that is furthering the cinematography industry. So I feel like it's a combination of both. It's education on a technological level, education, on a storytelling level, and then also it's a networking opportunity. So I feel like it, it's a win-win. I mean, the the lose-lose is that it costs. There's right. costs. Yeah. A lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money. <laughs> a lot, a lot, of, lot money. of money. A lot of money. Yeah. 
you mentioned that you now uh, teach at AFI. I've seen uh, some of your bios actually describe you as an educator as well, and that you provide educational opportunities in other programs. How did you arrive at becoming an educator, being part of your life as a cinematographer? And what is the importance of that? Like, why do you teach, basically? So actually, one of the other reasons to answer your question going back about why grad school, I mean, besides networking, besides education, actually education for myself. <laughs> um Education and teaching is actually something that I've always been really drawn to as well. I feel like Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be the person I am today if it wasn't for the mentors that have educated me. And it has always been a goal of mine that I do want to be a cinematographer, but then I also want to be able to educate people once I reach a level that I can, I can pay it forward. So that was the another reason why I attended grad school, because yes, as you know, like any sort of grad program having, I mean, it's either a life experience or having a master's degree is a way of getting into the educator side of the film industry. But then, I mean, basically, yes, like it's really important for me, particularly being a cinematographer that, you know, I can help other women or people of a background that is not common in cinematography to encourage them to help them, you know, make that leap. Because I feel like, I mean, it only helps, it helps us all, right? It helps the person that's, you know, trying to make that break into the industry, but then it helps us all collectively, right? The more the world sees that cinematographers are not just white dudes, you know, that they're women, they're black, they're Asian, they're queer. I mean, that gives, that just opens up doors. That just keeps the door open for more people to a point where, you know, and we're no longer considered, oh, Sandra Valde Hansen, the female Filipina cinematographer. It's Sandra Valde Hansen, the cinematographer. And that's where education starts. Too. I just feel like the reason even why I'm here today is because of, you know, reading, even reading, not necessarily even meeting, but reading about these women and people of color who are educating. I mean, that's education and inspiration in itself. So that that's a huge goal. I really want to I, I really want us all to take over on is there any of the programs that you've participated in as an educator or as a mentor just have like a special place in your heart to you or something that just like you feel is really making a difference and why? Ooh, besides AFI. Uh, AFI could count. I mean, AFI is a big one. <laughs> uh, AFI is definitely a big one. The wonderful institution that really does pay it forward and really concentrate on wholeheartedly cinematography. But, you know, I, I have been a participant and a mentor in Project Involve at Film Independent. I was a participant way back when, and I've served as a mentor, and I really do feel like that's a good opportunity. I spe- I mean, I don't know now. I mean, there there was some good educational opportunities when I was there. I know it's really grown since I it's was okay. there. I was in the cohort yeah. last year. Oh, amazing. And <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's also a fantastic networking opportunity. I, I mean, it was for me. But I even now, like when I was a fellow, I think they asked us to make like a two minute video about Project Involve. And that was kind of our assignment. And now you guys are. <laughs> 
making, you know, short films and that are going off to festivals. And I mean, I think that's brilliant. Um, And that's what I've mentored. I've mentored some of the cinematography fellows there. And then the other one, I've done some panels. I haven't done any formal education, but the TV Academy also. Hmm. The TV Academy has an internship uh, program. I mean, it's all fields and disciplines, but they do have one for cinematography. So I did that as well, right out of the AFI. They only have, they only pick one cinematography intern. So it is, it is a bit competitive, but it was a great experience for me. I was able to, you know, intern on a television show under Alan Queso ASC. And I learned so much there just in general cinematography. But then when I finally moved into television, that internship that happened way back when made me, made me a lot, a, a lot. I, I avoided asking really dumb questions because I have oh, <laughs> gone through the experience uh, uh, when I did my first TV show. So I owe a lot to that too as well. I mean, Women in Media is also doing some great strides, strides too. I've participated in some panels uh, with them. The wonderful thing about Women in Media is that, you know, they concentrate on below the line. You know, there's some really great women forward organizations, but a lot of times they are built for directors, producers, while Women in Media really does highlight uh, the below the line crew. So I think that's also a great place. Need to hire an underwater cinematographer in the Caribbean? Or a drone certified cinematographer in South America? How about a Mandarin speaking cinematographer that can work in Europe? We gotcha. Our comprehensive database of over 300 members is searchable by location, language, specialties, affiliations, and genre slash categories. Visit our site now and find your next superstar collaborator at icfcfilm.com. Pivoting more towards your actually your cinematography career, because we're talking about your career as, as an educator. So after you left AFI, you started doing some features and you connected with Greg Araki and have been shooting most of his stuff ever since. Can you talk a little about that, that experience and that collaboration with him, starting with Kaboom? Kaboom? Yeah. That was it? So, I mean, this is uh, one of the, I don't know if this is a story, but this is a, kind of my example of, you know, when cinematography students are like, what should I do now that I'm out? And, and, and I'm like, shoot as much as you can. Shoot everything, anything that interests you. Get out there and make connections because it's all about connections. And how this all started was I actually shot a um, AFI program has the directing workshop for women. And I happened to have the opportunity to shoot one of the DWW projects and the director again this is this is literally how it's always like you never know who you are going to interact with and who's going to get you your next job but the director of that was part of the alliance of women directors and they had a list serve going on and 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 one of the members had sent out a post saying, SOS, help, I've lost my cinematographer. I, I I need a cinematographer. And so the director that I worked with on the DWW wrote in and said, oh, I recommend Sandra, you should get in touch with her. And so this filmmaker, her name is Janet Grillo. She did. She reached out to me. She had a short. Luckily, we hit it off. And a week later, I was shooting her short. And... Um, <laughs> On that, the producer of that short, Pavlina Hatupi, we hit it off. And I guess like six months later, she contacted me and she had gotten the job to be the line producer on Gregor Rocky's new film. And she reached out and she was like, hey, Sandra, so have you heard of Gregor Rocky? And I have. 
I've been following his career since I was an undergrad. I thought he was crazy and I thought his movies were nuts, but in a very good way, by the way. And she's like, yeah, so he's, he has a indie feature coming up and he's look, he's always looking for new talent. Are, shall I put your name in the hand? And I'm like, first in my mind, I'll be honest with you. I was like, because this guy's films were so out there and just, I mean, I, I, I'm trained by a documentary cinematographer right? My training is natural lighting and kind of documentary based. That That's where my training is, right? And this and Gregor Rocky is so far from that. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, sure, yes, put my name in the hat because I would just love to meet him. But there is no fucking way this guy's going to hire me. Like he's going to look at me and he's going to look at my work and he's going to be like, Absolutely not. She's the girl next door. Goody, goody. You know, no. <laughs> so she did. And I got interviewed by him and I got the job. <laughs> that That's how it all started. And so I went off and I, I went uh, to shoot Kaboom. Little did I know at the time, you know, I, I think, and I don't know, Greg may not admit this, but I, I Greg was, you know, Greg is always having something, you know, cooking, right? And so I think Kaboom was kind of a testing ground for him to find his kind of new collaborators. And I guess I passed the test. <laughs> and you've been recently doing a lot of TV work mostly, right? Yes. So can you talk about the transition into TV work and how TV work is maybe different than feature work? And is do you have a preference Oh boy, preference. I'd say so. My transition into television is because of Greg Rocky. I mean, I owe Greg Rocky a lot to my career. He pretty much, for lack of a better word, legitimized my independent feature career because after I started working with Greg, you know, Kaboom went off to Sundance and went to Cannes. Um, and then after that, I was able to get more indie features. You know, as far as my indie feature career goes, though, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've, I've shot, I think it's 12. 12, 15 independent features since I got out of, of school and maybe two have, have, have truly, honestly, I mean, and those are Greg's movies, uh, have seen the light of day, but I don't really regret any moment uh, of doing those films. I mean, I, I did them for various reasons and I, I learned it has made me who I am today, has made me a better cinematographer, basically for things that I've learned how to do things and also how not to do things and people I don't want to work with and how to handle people that are difficult and, you know, how to really nurture the people who you love to work with. I mean, there's just so many different learning experiences from that. But honestly, so how I got into television was, again, like I said, Greg, you know, he's been making indie features since the 80s and every feature that he's been doing has gone to Sundance. And he did in, I think, the early 2000s, actually did a pilot for MTV. And it was always his dream to make a TV show. Sadly, I think they may have shot the pilot, but it didn't get greenlit. And so then I guess, you know, Greg moved on and went on to shoot other indie features after that. And then lo and behold, somehow, you know, he managed to get stars and Steven Soderbergh really interested in a TV show. And then, of course, this is like kind of the the start of the streamers and 
you know, and everybody's looking for content. So Greg really kind of took the bull by the horn and got his um, show now, Apocalypse, basically supported by Soderbergh and then Stars, because I think Soderbergh had a deal with Stars. What was interesting is like, even though, you know, Greg and I have been working for over 10 years because I was moving into television, which I hadn't done before, I had to interview with Greg. <laughs> Uh, just such a funny interview because it was just like, oh, hey, Greg. And, you know, we hadn't seen each other for a few months. And so we we started talking about like what was happening in the world and who's doing what and who's doing that. He was like, oh, wait, now let's talk about the show. Um, and, you know, and he was asking me all of these questions that, I mean, I answered, of course, and honestly, but I'm like, Greg, you know, these <laughs> know how I work. But he, you know, he told me he had to do his due diligence because, yes, I mean, as you know, this industry has, you know, very, there is a narrow mindedness. I mean, and, and, and to be honest with you, particularly with women cinematographers, you know, they're like, oh, there is no television on Sandra's how do we know she can handle it? But luckily, you know, Greg really pushed me forward. And I, I actually, I was supposed to meet with the studio and then it never happened. They were just like, oh, she's hired. And so I moved into mm. television from there and I've I've been doing it ever since. To answer your question about which do I prefer, I don't know. Mm. I honestly don't know. I was just actually talking to a director friend of mine who I just worked with her on the summer. I turned pretty season two and we were both talking about it. She comes from indie features, but has been really into, tel- you know, been doing a lot of television lately. And the one thing that I miss about indie features is my ability to create a true visual trajectory from start to finish, because a lot of the times the scripts aren't written Or, you know, I don't, you know, when I start prepping for a show, the scripts aren't written yet or they're, they are, but then they change as, you know, as the showrunners start to see things, particularly in season one shows. So it's harder. It's harder for me to, and then you also are working with different directors. Luckily, when I did Now Apocalypse, Now Apocalypse was basically shooting a feature, just a really long one. He had all the scripts written and he was the only director. And so it was. For me, I'm like truly blessed, honestly, because it was like a good transition into television where I was still working in kind of that feature space. But within a television space, it was great. So I do miss that I don't get to work with one singular director. I mean, it's changing. There are television shows that are doing only singular, you know, limited series and and mini series and all of that. But everything that I've done so far has been with multiple directors. So I miss that. But the other thing that we were talking about was the thing about indie features, though, or features in general, beyond like the Marvels and the studio films are the how many people are going to see it? Because that is one of the biggest things that's important to me as a cinematographer. I I mean, obviously, I want to work on good stories and I want to work on stories that I can I can bring some sort of cinematic language to do. But I also want people to see it. You know, I, I worked on way too many indie features that nobody ever saw. The stories that I truly felt were really important to me and two people saw them. And I, I'm happy to see two people saw them. But the one thing about television is that people are going to see it. People are going to see it. 
and they're going to hopefully talk about it. And then there is more, you know. So there's there's pros and cons to both. You know, every day it changes for me. So I don't know. Enjoying this conversation with a talented cinematographer? There's 300 more from where they came from. Help support our members and our mission by going to icfcfilm.com slash friends to donate. We're an all-volunteer group and your support will help us keep our website running, our events happening, and our members visible so they get hired. No donation is too small, so donate today. And don't forget to hit subscribe. Let's put it out into the universe what would your dream project be? Like, if you could do anything, like, what would it be? Oh, so my my first thing, it, it's weird, though, because it's always been my main goal is studio feature, right? But what mm-hmm. exactly does that mean? Because technically, like, the studios now that exist are not just Paramount, Warner Brothers, Sony, there's Hulu, there's, and and I have, I have shot a Hulu <laughs> Um, but I, I feel like I, I do actually, I, I would like to do a studio feature with a much bigger budget. That That's what I want to do. As far as what type of film, ooh, that's a harder, uh, I know there's a lot of cinematographers out there that are like, I want to shoot what Roger Deakins shoots, or I want to shoot the next Marvel movie. For me... Every day is a little bit different. I'll be honest with you. I love comedy. I have been doing comedy. I've been in the young adult space for the last two years. And I really love YA. I want to do more cinematic YA. And, and comedy is really hard in, to make cinematic. And that's that's what I want to do. But I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you right now. I want to do a studio feature. This is my dream. I wanted to do a studio feature with a fairly hefty budget that my mom will go and see and love. That's a good goal. Yeah. If your parents like with, yeah, I've had those moments, um, particularly with my mom. If my parents would see it and like it and not be like, that was good. You did a good job. I think that's a good right. thing to aim yes. for. So yeah. that, again, that's. That's my goal. Something very different than I think a lot of I was like, oh, I want to win an Academy Award. No, I just want my mom to really like truly like it and not blow smoke out my ass when I asked her how much she liked it. Um, yeah, because my mom, you know, my mom is is honestly my inspiration. You know, she wanted to be a nurse since she was a little girl and her dad wanted her to be a doctor, uh, a teacher. And when she told her dad that she wanted to be a teacher, um, I mean, a nurse, he was very upset and she cried for like three days. And it wasn't it was her aunt that paid for her to go to nursing school. I think everything I do is because of my mom and, you know, to just to have my mom say, you know, and to tell her friends to go watch. Like, I'll I'll give you an example, like Crazy Rich Asians, right? Again, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's beautiful film, but it's not, you know, like a cinematographer's. I mean, it's my dream, but maybe not some other people. But like Mm -hmm. when Crazy Rich Asians came out, like my mom got all of her friends and they went out and they made it an event. That's Mm -hmm. my dream that that my mom takes all of her friends (laughs) to a movie. The my movie. So, yeah. 
So going back to your television work, I know that on some of your shows, you've worked with an alternating DP. And can you talk a little bit about what it's like to collaborate with another DP on a show to keep consistency within the TV show? What that what's that like? My TV career started out with me being the, the sole DP, obviously working with Greg and working more in kind of a feature film kind of process. And then the, the next show I did was the L Word Generation Q, and I was the lead DPs because so usually there's if there is two there's always a lead and then there's the alt Mm -hmm. and every show works a little differently I can honest with you the L word I think was probably a little bit different than most I was paired up with Moira Morrell who happened to be a student of mine and it was like this was this is like my dream (laughs) I don't know Moving forward, and I've told Moira this many times, that we had a dream collaboration. And the L word, to their credit, actually said to me and Moira, we want the two of you to come up with the look. And I feel like if Moira and I didn't have that relationship, maybe other DPs might be like, whoa, no, no. I mean, for me, even if they paired me with somebody that I didn't know, I would be totally for it. I think it's actually better when you have two DP heads because our brains, we have so much to deal with. There is the look, there is the there is the crew, there is the managing, there's the logistics. Particularly in a first season of a TV show, to have two DPs working together that are willing to work together because obviously like I'm so willing, but who knows, some other people may not be so willing, but to be able to delineate task was really helpful. And, you know, and Moira and I just work so well together. Like we would just brainstorm ideas and, you know, we didn't feel, you know, she would tell me, you know, that idea sucks. And I would really say, like, we were very open and honest. I mean, we were literally like, a, a DP with two heads, which I don't know. I, I think it's a good thing, but maybe others may feel like, oh my God, that's <laughs> that's sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> so that's how Moira and I work for two seasons. And what's interesting, I ended up not doing season three of The L Word. You know, Moira stepped up. I'm so proud. You know, she was able to step up to the lead and then they brought in another DP, Danny Groons, who had camera operated for us all of season two. And she did the same thing. That's how, even though it was a new person, you know, not necessarily a totally new person, but she also was like, hey, we're going to, we're going to do this together. So I actually, since then, the shows that I've been working, I've either been the sole DP or I've been the alternate. Um, So I haven't actually been able to do what I did uh, with Moira yet, just because I haven't been on a show with two DPs where we're in the lead. And as far as my experience being the alt, there's pros and cons, right? The con, I think, as we can all attest to, is, you know, you don't necessarily get a full say in the look. But I don't necessarily see that as a con because a lot of times on shows, particularly season one shows, you got you interview, right? You interview for, for the show thinking that you're going to get the lead position. And so you come in and you say, this is the look I'm going for. They give you feedback. They tell you the kind of look that they're going for. And hopefully it aligns with what you're thinking, right? 
and you're like, oh, this is great. I, I, I hope I get the job. And then when they call you and they say, oh, well, we love you, Sandra, but we want to, to take the alt position. So-and-so is going to get the lead position. As far as the look goes, if you know what the show's look is and you are in line with that, you know that the lead is going to have kind of the same perspective. It's not like the lead is like, you know, I come in saying this is going to be dark and, you know, contrasty. And then the lead comes in and says, well, no, this is going to be like bright and, and, and colorful. No, I mean, usually, hopefully your looks align. And so as far as saying you don't necessarily have a say in the look, I mean, yes, in terms of preparation, but you like where the show is going to go anyway. So what's the big deal? <laughs> when it comes time for you to shoot your episode, it's not like the other DP is going to be like standing, you know, behind you going, no, 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 you get to do, <laughs> to do whatever you want. And as we all know, I mean, even this would happen with Moira and I, and we were like one DP with two heads. Her approach to the look of the show was very different than my approach, just in terms of how we work, maybe a little bit of, you know, how we approach lighting. But for some, we all came to the same end. We just, she went this way, I went this way, but then we came we came together. And so, you know, when you're an alt, as long as you're good with the look of the show, you get to do your thing. The positive part about being an alt is you a lot of times don't have to deal with some of the politics. <laughs> you know, you just kind of show up, you know, there's the crew is already ready. I mean, that could be a con. You don't have a chance to have a say in the crew depends on who you're working with. I always, if I'm the lead, I always like to get the alt's opinion in terms of crew because, but a lot of the time, sometimes I come in and they've already started shooting. And so I don't necessarily, or like, for instance, the last show that I did, they had already done a season one. And so they just brought in people that worked on season one. And, and in season one, they only shot with a single DP and they realized they needed two in season two. And that's when they brought me on. The pro of it is, you know, you just kind of show up and yeah, I mean, there's always politics. There's always politics of being a DP, but uh, when you're the alt, you don't, there's some things that you don't necessarily have to speak to, which is sometimes very good. <laughs> okay. Uh, you also recently became an ASC member. <laughs> But can you talk a little bit about that experience and if there's anything you're trying to do through it or with it or, you know, yeah. So I do have to say, like, I really do want to commend Stephen Lighthill and his board members of, like Amy Vincent, you know, particularly in this, in his tenure, with this board's tenure, I think it has been really important to them. I think they have made a realization that, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I'll just say it, a lot of their members are going to die soon. And a lot of their members are white men. And I think, you know, they have made the realization that they need to, not only, you know, because a lot of them are 
up there in age, they have to build the membership as people you know start to pass. And and at that very moment, obviously, if we're going to bring the membership up, we we obviously do need to make the membership more diverse. And so I I really do credit them for that. As far as the ASC membership goes, I mean, obviously, as you know, in order to get into the ASC, you have to have a certain amount of work. You have to have a certain amount of, I don't necessarily know how to describe the work, but work that has been seen. It doesn't necessarily have to be like blockbuster movie type thing, but it does have to be within the television or the or the theatrical space. Like it has to have been seen. And then you do need at least three people to nominate you. And so that luckily happened for me. And then once those letters are in, then you have to put together a reel and and then you meet with the membership and then they decide. So I guess that's how it happened for me. I've made a lot of, just by my teaching experience and just because I'm, you know, based here in LA, I've, I've made it a point in my career to make as many contacts as I can just from my general work as being a cinematographer, just in terms of vendors and in terms of other cinematographers asking for their advice and, and things. So the beauty of the ASC is, is to be honest with you, is they are, the members are really accessible now that I'm in the ASC. And, and the one thing I have to say about being in the ASC, which is expected of their members, is the ability to pay back. So yes, being part of this organization is obviously prestigious and it's it's great to have those three letters after your name, but it is required of you. And I and I think rightfully so. It shouldn't even be a requirement. It should just be part of who we are as DPs is the ability to be open and accessible to future cinematographers or any cinematographers out there. And that is something that I'm really excited. I mean, that's one of the reasons. I mean, obviously, for all the other obvious reasons of being an ASC member, but one of the most exciting for me is that I can nurture, you know, my goal of being an educator and meeting people and encouraging more women, more people of color in this industry and helping show that we exist. So that's one of the exciting things about me being a, a new member. And I hope, I mean, I'm just new, so I'm still loving the ropes of, of being in the ASC and, and it, it's still a little daunting to me. I'll be honest with you, like, there's a bit of imposter syndrome that's happening right now, which I hear, I hear, I've heard from many ASC members of all walks of life and people you would not expect to say this, but there's like a five-year imposter syndrome, um, like period, <laughs> when you're sitting in a committee meeting and you're like, oh, shit, I am sitting next to so-and-so, but, and, and we're just people, but it's, <laughs> like, I can't believe I'm sitting at this table. Wow, 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 you know. Um, but anyway. Is there anyone that would get you starstruck? Like either a DP or someone else that still has that ability to make you starstruck? Ooh, starstruck. I mean, they all do. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, you realize <laughs> that they're all people, right? You know, that that's what yeah. it, it comes down to. I mean, you know, there's always a, an element of starstruckness, I think. Like for me, I've always... Cinematographers have always been kind of like a like the the like the celebrity actors. You know, I, I remember 
Yeah. Uh, when I was in film school, there was a lighting workshop that the union was giving and students were allowed to come. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to be a DP is, and I'm sorry I didn't say it before, was uh, Empire of the Sun. So Empire of the Sun was the movie that pretty much, you know, said that's what I wanted to do. Um, and that's Alan Davio, right? And so, and I love Alan Davio's work. And Alan was giving a, uh, a lighting seminar and I had brought my ASC pen. And my uh, classmate was like, you should get Alan to sign your ASC manual. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do He's like, no, you really should. And he kind of dared me to do it. And so I did. And I went up to Alan and I was like, can I get your autograph? <laughs> and and I told him, I mean, he was so gracious and it, 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 it's so sad that, that he is now passed, but he was so gracious to me. And I told him Empire of the Sun was the reason why I'm a cinematographer. And he was so humble. We started talking a little bit about it, his, his experiences on the set. And he just kept saying it was all Spielberg. It was all Steven is what he said. He kept saying it was all Steven. <laughs> But really humble guy. And so I'll be honest with you, I do get starstruck, but I try not to show it when I first, <laughs> when I meet them, even though inside my head, I'm like, oh my God, I am talking to, you know, I don't know. There's still, I think there is some DPs that I don't know. I don't know how to talk to yet. I won't admit who they are right now, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm curious to talk about imposter syndrome a little bit since you brought it up. And I, I feel like it's like something that I hear a lot of DPs talk about. I mean, yes, in the ASC, you know, like that's that's like a different format. But like just in general, like feeling that there's no real rubric for how good or how what's the right way to do that. Do you know what I'm saying? And I wonder if you have any thoughts on just imposter syndrome in general in everyday DP life. I mean, all I, all I can say is imposter syndrome is a real thing. It definitely is. I mean, I feel like most of us, you know, we are probably the worst critics of our own work. I'm always looking at my work going, oh, my God, why did I do that? Or I could have done this better. I mean, I was I was actually just talking to some of my students and they were asking me about, you know, a particular thing that I've done in um, LED car work. And uh, right before I met with them, I was kind of looking at my LED car work from when I first started and I was watching it and I was going, oh, my God, this is horrible. What was I thinking? <laughs> And once I met with them, they asked me, hey, Sandra, is it possible that we can watch everything that you've done? And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, uh, sure. But I mean, but again, but it was funny because whenever I look at my work, I, I'm always I'm always like, oh, my God, I, I can do this better. So that's one time because we are our worst critics that obviously instigates that. And then, you know, this is this industry is we're. It's a industry of freelancers, right? It's not like we have that nine to five job that we're going to be at for the next 20 years. I mean, our jobs come and go. And there are times that it's really great. And then there are times that it really sucks and that nobody's calling or nobody's, you know, there's no scripts coming your way. And then that's when the doubt starts to set in. And, yep. and then, and then you go on to social media and all of your contemporaries, your friends, they're on, you know, they're on set going, hey, you know, yep. 
you know, and, and you're just sitting there at home going, am I good enough? Look at these people. Nobody's calling me right now, but they're out there. And, you know, at times I try to tell myself, you know what, Sandra, you can do that. It's just not your time, right? You can do what they're doing. Just, <laughs> and, you know, as much as I tell myself that, you know, over and over again, there's still times where I'm just like, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. And then I start looking at my work or, you know, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, now I see it. Now there's the reason why he's <laughs> calling me. Um, but it is. I mean, we're artists, too. Right. So well, I it think just it just reminded yeah, me yeah, when you said, um, your interview with Greg Araki, you know, like that you're like, oh, well, this is not something that I do, you know, and I feel like that really resonates in a way that like, oh, like when we're having interviews with people we don't know or pitching for projects, maybe that's also sometimes where the imposter syndrome seeps in you're, you're, you're and you're like, am I am I qualified to do this? You know, or if it, you start working in bigger and bigger projects, right, that you don't have the scope for and you're like, am I ready for this? Right. Do I know? And then you're just kind of faking it at some point. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so I, I feel like the imposter syndrome is always going to exist in me. I mean, I'll, I'll admit it, but I never show it. I mean, I might tell my yeah. husband that. I might call okay. my mom. I might, you know, tell my confidants, my my close friends. It's always going to live in me. But but I feel like as cinematographers, particularly women, we have to like go in there when we are given the opportunity and they ask us because like men do this all the time. You know, they'll yeah. be like, so Sandra, uh, so can you do X, Y, and Z? And you're in your head going, oh my God, I don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I can. I can do that. Uh, no problem. And then, you you know, you walk out of the, the room and you're just like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and, and then, yeah, interviews are horror. I mean, the funny thing is, like, interviews are good and, and are bad. You know, like, that, that in itself. I mean, it's part of our job. I actually happen to enjoy doing interviews. I always try to go into an interview going, I don't get this job. Well. I think it's just practice, you know, but yeah, interviews are, again, this industry is it, so hard, is so tough. It's, it's a series of, you know, rejections over and over and over again. And yes, there's going to be times where people will be complimenting your work and you'll be like, That's cool. you know, when you start getting, you know, we all have egos, right? But then there's other times where, you know, you, you get the call and then they're saying, no, you know, thank you so much. It was so great meeting you, but we're going to go in a go different in direction. direction. They always say that they're going to go in a different direction. And you're just like, yeah. what? why? It was not mine. Yeah. Oh, no, I, right. <laughs> I know. It's, I feel like sometimes it's hard to not take it personally. Right. It's like, what about it? Of my work wasn't good enough or wasn't what you had in line. And then you start thinking, is it my personality? Was I not charming enough? Maybe. Or, you know. And I feel like that's kind of the hard thing is that like some industries, you know, you interview for a job, maybe you're not the most qualified candidate and that's OK. Right. And that's that's it. But I feel like sometimes for us, it's it's hard not to take it personally. Right. Like it's it's right. Our art is so connected or what we shoot is so connected to who we are as people. It's hard to like disconnect that, I feel like. Absolutely. And I feel, you know, when I go into an interview or actually when I work, I I mean, I'm not saying that other people don't, but I, I mean, I am one of those people that really puts a thousand percent in yeah. what she does. And when when I commit to something, I commit. 
I 100% commit, you know, when there is any sort of criticism, which is fine. Criticism is good. But there's always a time where I was just like, oh, you know, and I'll be honest with you. I I, I was brought up not to stick to the stereotype, but I I am Asian American and I was a straight A student and there was an expectation of me to be the absolute best. I mean, I'm I'm trying not to now that I'm a mother, like I don't want that on my daughter, but it does. It, It does affect my work. So and it does influence the imposter syndrome. And also the level of success is so different, right? Everyone has such a different trajectory and different level of success. And it's hard to gauge what is, you know, like my mom also wanted me to be a lawyer. Right. And so then I say, like, I compare my career and say, well, what level of success would it feel like I was a lawyer to her? (laughs) Yeah, I my mom wanted me to be an engineer really badly. She is an engineer herself. So when I was just a filmmaker, she was a little bit like, uh. and now that I was a cinematographer, she was like, well, at least there's science involved. And I'm like, OK, OK, I'll take I mean, that. My, my parents, you know, whenever I tell them I get a job, I've gotten a job. Their first question is, how much are you making? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I love my mom and dad and I don't want to start a fight. So I'll tell them or I'll lie if it's real. <laughs> so just so that I just so that they could be like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's yeah. good. Because that's how they gauge things that, you know, they, they have nothing mm-hmm. else to gauge because they don't necessarily understand, you know, what what we yeah. do. You know, my mom does now a little bit more so than my father. I mean, my father's always asking me, like, so how much are you making? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm making this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hello, they cream. So, you know, that's why I think therapy always helps too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and talking too, like yeah, that, that's the wonderful thing about, I think ICFC is I've always felt, even when I was in film school, like from undergrad, I told you I was in one of the few classes that the majority were women. You know, we all... I mean, maybe not all of it, but most of us all stuck together. We all stuck together. And when things were tough, we would all, you know, kind of raise each other up. And I don't know if guys do that a lot. I mean, I know there's some that do for sure. We don't want to, you know, make the stereotype, but there is something said about, you know, a collective of women coming together and, you know, and raising each other up. So you know. But I still, you know, even though you may tell me, Amelia, Akina, you know, you'll be great. Sandra, it's amazing. You'll, I love it. No, what you're doing is a good idea. I still, you know, at the end of the Zoom going, Sandra, really, you can be better. I mean, it, it's just an ongoing, <laughs> I feel like any cinematographer yeah. just has to expect that, you know. Yeah. I mean, everybody, regardless of who you are, you know, like even, you know, in film school, I, I always knew like now that I'm teaching, like I can read like the one student who like sits in the back of the classroom acting all cocky, like they he or she knows what's up. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> They're as scared as the rest of us. Yeah. 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 Love what we've been focusing on in this interview. What about the angle we've been taking? 
have you found it illuminating. Help us power our community by going to icfcfilm.com slash friends and making a donation today. We're an all-volunteer group and your support will help us keep our website rolling, our events lit, and our podcast punny. Okay, maybe the last one's free, but we do need your help for everything else. And don't forget to subscribe. Just one last one. Um, I know that, you know, you you have a family and everything. So kind of how do you can you just talk to us a little bit about how you gauge your work life balance and if you choose your projects differently and like if there are long term projects, does that affect your choices or anything? Just something to think about for some of us who want to have families one day. I don't know if that's. <laughs> How no. I'm going to do? <laughs> no, I mean uh, that. That's actually so. You know, one of the things. I mean, I was pretty upfront and honest. You know, when I met my husband way back when, I I told him I was like, if you want to start a relationship with me, let me just tell you that my whole life I live and breathe becoming a, a, a DP. And what does that mean? And mm-hmm. this is what this means. This means that I'm going to be away a lot. This means that, you know, even if I'm at home, I'm going to be working 12 hour, 14, 16 hour days. Like, are you all for this? And, you know, luckily he he is. He was, he is. And, and he's he's actually, my husband is really one of the reasons why we have been able, I have been able to do this because he's been so supportive. It's hard though. I can tell you right now, particularly now. So last year and probably this year, I'll be gone seven to eight months out of the year. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, yeah, and wow. I have I have an eight-year-old. So it was actually a lot easier uh, when she was younger because, you know, when she was three or four, she would obviously be sad that mom is going, but she does, didn't necessarily have the words to express her sadness. And now that she's eight, you know, pushing nine, she is definitive about her, you know, how she feels, which is making it much harder for me. Mm. And do I have any answers to this? Uh no. Not at all. <laughs> it's again, you know, it's my husband who really kind of helps me through this. Like we really do sit down and talk about every project that I do. And I keep repeating to him. I was like, well, you know, if I take this project, I'm going to be gone for four months or I'm going to be gone for five months. I'm going to be I, last year. I was in Korea for four months, um, which was very hard for communication. And, and you know, he would mm. constantly tell me, but OK, do you want to go? What is this going to do? Is this going to help you? Is this what you want? Is this going to propel your career? Like we go through all of the points. I mean, obviously there's finan- good financial reasons mm-hmm. to pursue some things like this, but, and we, we talk it through and he's like, you know, we figure it out. I mean, last year was actually the first time we're actually taking this year. Cause I'll probably be gone again for that amount of time. We we're we're making some changes in terms of how we can make it better. And, and we're talking about like, well, last year was a little easier because my husband was working from home and now they're asking him to come back into the office. So we're, you know, looking at childcare. We're looking at, you know, now that the income is, is coming in, like looking at even just somebody to come and clean the house, you know? Um, so, so in terms of like the work-life balance that I'm doing right now is you really have to consider if you have a child that can't come with you or because of school or whatever, what the needs of your, your loved one, the person that is going to be 
taking care of your children, your child, right? And what they need and how you can support that. And hopefully the income that you're making, maybe you can hire a couple of people or somebody to to offset that. And then of course, there is FaceTime. I'm constantly doing FaceTime. We're doing, we do actual virtual movie nights every either Friday or mm. Saturday night. And then I'll help her with homework. I'll talk to her, you know, every day. And, and I'll talk to my husband too, <laughs> every day. Um, I mean, thank goodness for FaceTime or Zoom, um, all of these kind of, mm-hmm. it, it has allowed a, a little bit more connectivity. It's a little hard, you know, like I haven't worked in a city that makes it, it's easy to get in and out, but I know that I've asked for like maybe a plane ticket or two to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and even even if the production won't pay for it, I'll just do it, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel yeah. like it's really just is important. And anything you can, can do, but it is hard. And it is something that you really do need to communicate to your partner exactly what is going to happen and then also hear your partner's needs as well and figure out you know so and that and that's where we're we're kind of at right now we're just we're trying to figure out what the how the best way to uh to approach this is but yeah it's an ongoing process uh (laughs) and it's quite tricky but you know one of the things that my husband keeps telling me which i think is is really great advice is we're being really good examples for our kids in terms of um, even if we're away from them a lot, that we are following our love, our dream, and we're, we're, it's our career and we're hopefully being successful at it. But then when I'm back at home, I really try to make myself available, you know, on those downtimes is, is, is try to really focus on family. And um, so the balance, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think being the child of two parents who worked really crazy hours growing up because my parents were at the university administrators, what you just said actually did hit home, which is like, yeah, they I didn't see them a lot during the week, but I do appreciate like they really love what they do and it really did come through in their passion. So I, I do think kids definitely see that, which is and it is important. Like I, I carry that into my work going forward. So anyway. yeah, no, Akina. same, same. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, watching my parents work also kind of instills work ethic, you know, I think that that's really mm-hmm. important as part of being a DP, too. But what I was going to say was, um, speaking of downtime, are there are there things that you do, any hobbies or anything that kind of take you out of the like media consumption space? You know, like sometimes I feel like I need to step away and say I'm not going to watch any TVs or movies or think about anything, you know, go outside and not live in this world and I was wondering if there's anything that you do like that that kind of you know takes your inspires you creatively in a different way that's not just this world that screen time you know I'll be totally upfront and honest with you I need one um (laughs) I I do I I do need one and I haven't found the right one the one thing I do is read I'm a big like I'm a big fiction is is my just to get lost in in a good book yeah it is my one way of Mm -hmm. of of taking me out of everything when when all uh like that is what i do when i just want to step away from just the everyday everyday it is kind of find a good book but i am trying to find something else too uh 
We should try pottery. I was getting into pottery. You mentioned pottery. (laughs) Uh, You know, I've I've been thinking about sailing, you know, I don't know. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, I I don't know yet. Um, I mean, I I do have to say, like, because I've been gone for, you know, a a lot of, I guess a a lot of what I do is is spending time with my family. Um, That that is another Mm -hmm. way of, yeah. uh, uh, you know, and, and it, it's simple. Like playing board games or or whatever really does take me out mm-hmm. of uh, you know going to places and yeah. But reading, but I I don't know. I'm still trying to find uh, something that I, I'm like one of those people that like when I know it, I know it and I stick to mm. it. And I just haven't found that yet. <laughs> there. Okay, I'm gonna go into the last two questions. Okay, because uh, we're. Running the clock. Yeah. <laughs> so what is a piece of advice you wish you had when you were starting out? A piece of advice that I wish that I had when we were starting out. Wow. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a lot of advice, but I feel like I think the first thing that comes to mind is don't be afraid. And on so many levels, right? Like it's funny because I still hear you know, when I meet students and cinematographers, you know, and I, I'm kind of shocked by it, but it still rings true. Like I just heard the other day that they, you know, somebody was telling me like, I didn't think I could do this. And, you know, seeing you stand up there, you know, is just telling me. And when I hear, I mean, forget the part of them saying, you know, I'm inspired by you, whatever. The thing that like gets to me is that they say, I did not think I can do this. And I'm like, what? You know, just the accessibility of information that we have and you still think you can't do this. I mean, so I had that too, but I wish somebody and I had to push myself, but I wish I did have somebody tell me you can do this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If this is what you love, nobody can stop you. You have to work hard, but don't be afraid. So that's the don't be afraid does help just the jumpstart of the career. And then once I'm in it, and particularly when I'm studying or the people that are students, don't be afraid to take risks in in your in your work, in your schoolwork, particularly school. Like just do it. Try things new. Don't be afraid. I wish somebody told me that when I got into film school, particularly grad school, um, because I had all of this uh, experience. So I I kind of being a camera assistant, I kind of knew like, oh, you shouldn't do that or you shouldn't do this or you need to do this before you do that. And which I think is really good when it comes to the professional world. But then when you're a student, sometimes I feel like it holds you back a little bit when you're like, oh, no, I I, I, I don't want to try that light because that light won't do that. Well, how do you know? How do you know? Did you see it or di- are you doing it because somebody told you it wouldn't do that? Well, why not just try it? Even if it doesn't work, okay, who cares? Then you could be like, okay, yeah, they were right. But I just wanted to get my hands on it and do it. So- I think it's don't be afraid. Yeah, there's a lot of um, in film school in particular, people forget that it's a school 
and it's meant for you to learn. I think actually that was one of the best advice I got going into my second year at AFI. Uh, an alum did tell me like everything you think you're afraid to try, just try it. Cause like film school is actually a great place to learn and to fail and to fail without a lot of real world consequences. So like if you try something, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Then you know, that doesn't work. And if you tried it and it doesn't, now you have another tool in your arsenal. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're so right. And I mean, and now with just the accessibility of, of like, you know, tools and, you know, things you can buy on Amazon now, um, yeah. you, you don't, you don't need a, a Mole Richardson, you know, light to light a space. Like you can, for 50 bucks, you can buy some sort of lighting fixture on Amazon and it'll come to you the next day or you know, and, and people are trying all sorts of not necessarily new, but different techniques or, you know, just try it out. And if you don't want to do it at school, just try it at home and see if it works. I mean, I do have to say, and I'm not saying that just because, you know, when I started, we, we didn't have access to this stuff. But really, I think this is a great time to to be a DP or, you know, a student of cinematography because there's just so much out there that you can try and learn from. So. And one last question. It's a kind of a three-parter. So what is your favorite movie? What is your comfort movie? And what is the movie that has influenced your cinematography the most or influenced you as a cinematographer the most? Okay. So the last question, what, what movie is uh, influenced? So that's Empire of the Sun. Um, yeah, that, okay. that, that one is my, that's the movie that has inspired my cinematography still to this day inspires me. Mm. If I ever feel, you know, that imposter syndrome, <laughs> I'll watch that movie. What is my comfort movie? Oh boy. That's a little harder to, uh, I have, I've, I've quite a, a few, I'm a, I'm a rom-com, like rom-com mm. movie fan, like the Nancy Meyer, you know, even though those are just like mm. such candy movies, but any sort of Nancy Meyer movie is kind of my comfort movie. Not Nancy Meyer herself, just her movies. <laughs> <laughs> so like the, the, what is it like? Uh, something's got to give this yeah. in charge. And, uh, oh, yeah. um, you know, I don't know. A lot of Anne Hathaway. I'm not a big Anne Hathaway fan, but I just realized, like, I love Devil's Wear Prada. And, you know, all those TBS, like, rom-com movies they show on Saturdays. Like, those are mm. comfort. What is my uh, favorite movie? Mm. Oh, I don't know. And it's funny. I asked this in, like, all these AFI admissions. Uh, and now I'm on the other <laughs> side of it. And I'm just like, oh, shit. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I have one. I mean, I keep going back to Empire of the Sun, but I feel like I, I, uh, it, it, <laughs> I feel like I need to vary my, you know, because like Sandra, cinematographer, favorite movie, Empire of the Sun, uh, <laughs> Empire well, of the Sun, comfort movie, rom com, right? What's that? What if we narrow Dead it down for you? What if we say favorite movie in the last five years? Is that easier? Yeah. Oh no. Um, Two years. They, <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> actually, uh, OK, so uh, that's good. I, I actually do have a favorite recent movie because every year I think it changes. So my mm -hmm. favorite movie this year 
And I'm so excited for this person. And I hope to meet her. The cinematographer is the quiet girl that mm. the the Irish who it's actually nominated for best international feature for the Academy Awards. And it's nominated for the ASC Spotlight Award for the cinematographer Kate McCullough, I think is her name. This is such a beautiful, simple film. I think any filmmaker should watch um it's i mean it's called the quiet girl and it's also a very quiet movie but every Mm -hmm. um it tells the story of this uh, little girl who comes from a dysfunctional home that ends up spending her summer with a new family and it's her kind of the development of the relationship with this new family and I, I feel like the filmmakers on all levels, all the creatives really took time and heart into every frame and really they really got the perspective of the little girl. Perspective is always a big thing for me. Perspective that's that's how I approach all of my work when it comes time for like, let's figure out how to shoot this scene. I always I always go back to the word perspective. Like who whose scene is this? What is this scene about? What is the intent of this scene? And The Quiet Girl does that for me. And then, of course, after I watched it, I cried endlessly. Like it was just, it got me in the gut. So I hope that the world gets to see more of it. I mean, now that it's nominated for an Academy Award, I'm sure it's, I don't think it's, it has been released here in the U.S. yet, but or theatrically, I don't think so. But uh, mm. so, yeah, so that's within the last year. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so many other films, too. I mean, there's Elvis, there's, you know, uh, but um, but yeah, I, I'd say The Quiet Girl. Um, yeah. Anything else you'd li- like to add that we didn't touch on or anything you'd like to promote or where can we find you? You can find me in this thing. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit better on Instagram. So Instagram is really kind of the only social media. Uh, all been, I like I occasionally check Facebook, but I, I do like Instagram and I just kind of keep it focused on one thing because I can't handle everything else. So I'm on Instagram and Sandra Valde. Uh, Sandra Valde, I don't, uh, it's somewhere there. I should know that. Um, no, I just, the only thing I have to say is I think this is really great that uh, you guys are doing this. I know Amelia and I talked at the beginning before we started recording about you know, getting the names out there. And I'm not just saying this for, for myself and for selfish reasons. I, I, I really do feel like there are so many of us out there, you know, and I am constantly, and Amelia and I talked about it, getting these like, oh, I so-and-so, I can't find a woman cinematographer because I couldn't find one. And that is absolutely 100% not true. You know, we just have to get our names out there beyond the names that have made, definitely opened up the doors for all of us, you know, but now we have to get those, now that we're we're coming out the door, our names need to get out there. Uh, because what happens is, you know, all of these people that, are in the hiring, you know, positions only see five or six names. And then they, of course, go to those people and those people are working and then they say, oh, there's nobody. (laughs) So it's really good that, you know, that you guys are doing visibility is 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 a great thing. And, um, you know, we just have to we have to keep helping each other out because, Honestly, you know, yes, there are definitely mentors and other people out there that that do help us. But I think us all women cinematographers, we really do try to, 
to help each other and promote each other and um and let's let's continue doing it so like i said one day we're not known as so-and-so female cinematographer we're known as so-and-so cinematographer well put thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us also yeah thank you so much sandra we really really appreciate you coming on and talking thank you Yeah. yeah and anything else you need let me know So that was a really interesting conversation with Sandra. What do you think, Akina? Yeah, I mean, I agree. She was so sweet. And also, I think, like, really humbling to, like, see that, you know, someone so successful and of her stature, you know, is just so embedded in this, like, spirit of education and willing to talk to us like that. I think it was a great conversation. Yeah, I think uh, she was one of my teachers at AFI. And, like, one of the things I really am very appreciative to Sandra is that she's incredibly generous with her time and with her just wisdom. And she's just incredible to talk to in general, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's hard for like a lot of the DPs, like some of us are like starting out and like to navigate this industry is really difficult because there's no real clear path. You know, like I have a lot of friends who are in nine to five, like very straight career trajectory jobs. And like you can tell that they know the next steps. And I feel Mm -hmm. like for DPs, like that's kind of one of the hardest things. It's like everybody's career navigates a different direction, but you know, it's nice to know that there are certain stepping stones and certain ways that we should kind of navigate going forward. And eventually maybe we'll all get invited to the ASC. <laughs> that that's the dream. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> one of my personal goals. <laughs> Nowhere near there like that yet, but working on it. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's the idea, right? It's that like we just and I, I love what she talked about, how like we should just keep shooting, you know, um, there was like another article that she did an interview and she was talking about how you just have to keep doing it. Just don't be afraid and keep doing it. And I think that like that is really important for us to think about, you know, it's like, just keep working and keep shooting. And eventually people will see the things we shoot. (laughs) Yes, yes, hopefully is right. I mean, I think the moment she talked about, you know, how she shot 12 feature films, and like only a couple of them really, really got seen. I was like, because I just I just finished my third feature. And like the first two, I'm very proud of my work. But you know, they didn't get a lot of eyeballs on them um they're very art house so it's just like okay okay that's that's normal that seems normal now and like just that normalization again talking to my own imposter syndrome is good i feel (laughs) i don't know Uh, imposter syndrome i know i i really that's something that like the new yorker just wrote an article about that actually um but it's really interesting how it's so widespread and we just don't talk about it enough yeah because we we all have it. And I think Sandra acknowledging that is is just so refreshing to hear because I've heard it before from other people in her, you know, from her stature, her experience. But it's just like you forget about that, I feel, um, <laughs> on your day to day. And to just 
hear that and be like, okay, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. It's all going to be okay. Just helps us deal with, um, especially the slow seasons like right now. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, you know, there's times where I sit around and I'm like, what am I doing? You know? And then I just keep looking, I kind of do what she said. And I look at my work and say, you know what? Like, no, I'm actually really qualified to do this and I know what I'm doing. So why do I feel this doubt? Right? Like, why do I keep feeling this way? And, uh, it's, it's really nice to hear. I mean, it's not nice to hear that she has it too, but, uh, you know, it kind of gives you a little bit, it's a little calming effect. Yeah they're also going to feel that. And I, I think that that's, you know, we are also personally attached to our work and it's hard not to compare not only our work with other people, but also our careers with other people, right? Like not like envious or anything. Like I'm so happy and proud of my friends who are really doing cool stuff and achieving great success. But sometimes it's like, oh, like, is that going to happen to me? Or when mm-hmm. does that happen? You know? Yeah, we I, I had this moment with my former roommate who was also a cinematographer. This is a few years ago. And like we realized that we had been envious of each other. And it was just the funniest thing because he was like, oh, my God, I'm really jealous that you shot a feature. And I'm like, you have an agent. What the hell are you talking about? Like, and it was just like, we realized that we wanted what the other one had. And it's it's so hard to just keep that perspective um, in your own career sometimes. So definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. No, but I'm really excited also to continue this podcast. You know, I think that we're going to meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of people who are going to bring kind of similar and different experiences. And I'm just really excited to see where this podcast goes. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Thank you so much for listening today. Please follow us on Instagram at the ICFC. You can also reach us by writing to ICFCpodcast at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Emilia Mendieta Cordova, Fabian Hausepian, Akina Vandevelde, Senda Bonet, and Barbie Lung. <laughs>